Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, June 30th, 2010. Today is the two-year anniversary of Pirate Christian Radio. (laughs) Wow. That went by quick. And let's pray that we're able to be around here for a lot longer than two more years. But then again, if Jesus wants to show up like today, tomorrow, and you know, and you know, I don't mind if that happens. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying. In the name of God to the word of God. There's all kinds of crazy stuff being said out there about God. But the reality is, is that, well, um, none of us have met him. H- how can we know anything about God? Uh, the answer is, well, he has to reveal stuff about himself before we can know anything about God. And if people are out there claiming to be getting direct revelation from God or have had, you know, a latte with them over at Starbucks over the past couple of days, well, generally they're lying to you. And you're saying, well, how do you know? How do you know they're lying to you? Well, because uh, it seems like every time they open their mouth and talk about God, the God they're talking about doesn't sound anything like uh, the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. So if it contradicts God's word, Uh, We chuck it out and throw it into the ash heap of lies uh, said about God. Believe it or not, it's possible to have false visions of God. And it seems to be that is the norm nowadays rather than the exception because Christians, for whatever reason, have lost confidence in God's word and they've lost their focus. They're not preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. Instead, they want to make the world a better place to make a difference. Just remember, Hitler made a difference. Yeah, he made the world a different place, okay? <sighs> yeah, did I mention it's the two-year anniversary of Pioneer Christian Radio? This, today is the uh, two-year anniversary of, of when we went uh, uh, with a really uh, a, a daily edition of Fighting for the Faith. Now, Fighting for the Faith prior to... Uh, the launch of Pirate Christian Radio was a, an occasional podcast. And uh, the third, the, funny enough, Fighting for the Faith has been around for th- uh, almost three years, although the first year we did it, it was hit and miss. It was kind of more or less along the lines of beta testing, piloting, pilot testing the whole concept, if you would. 
And so uh, the three-year anniversary of uh, Fighting for the Faith comes up on uh, July 3rd. So, you know, this is just a big celebratory uh, next couple of days for us here at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, and I, I want to thank you all for supporting us and for your ongoing support and for listening. I, uh, every now and then, uh, somebody will talk to me. They'll follow the Pirate Christian Radio Mobile or they'll see me gassing up or I'll be at a supermarket or whatever. And somebody will come up to me and, and strike up a conversation. And it, it just amazes me that there, that uh, this humble operation that we have—that's Pirate Christian Radio. I mean, we run on a shoestring budget, and and you know that is not a, a, an overstatement. I mean, that's just reality with us. And uh, you know, it's a low-budget operation, yet we're heard all around the world. And uh, it still amazes me that people tune in. But it, it speaks to the power of God's word. It speaks to the relevancy of God's word, not not, not to my creativity or uh, even my wit or, or my exceptional strategic planning skills, like I even have any of those. No, it speaks to the power and relevance of God's word. I am I am a, I am a theologian of the stripe that believes the job of theology is to not have a unique theology. The idea here is is that we plumb the depths of God's word. And one of the best descriptions I've heard of the, of, of, of the real correct understanding of the theologian's craft is that it's it's like somebody who's an astronomer, not an astrologer, but an astronomer. The people who hang out at the tops of those mountains in, inside of those, uh, you know, those big observatories with the big, you know, telescopes and the, you know, and, and the, the radio telescopes and all uh, they don't they haven't discovered stars uh, they didn't invent the stars and creativity when it comes to the stars is kind of silly but the idea here is is that their job is an observational science theology is much the same way theology is an observational science and uh, the thing that we are to plumb the depths of and believe me when i tell you I mean, as many years as I have been studying the scriptures, I have yet to come close. I mean, it's like not even close at all to to really, really drive hard into and exhaust the uh, the the inform not just information, but what is revealed there about God in the scriptures. It is absolutely the most astounding, amazing book. Uh, there's nothing like this. Uh, on planet Earth. I mean, I've read good novels, and I enjoy a good read every now and then, you know, as far as novels are concerned. But uh, the Bible is in, is in a category all of its own. You can read it every single day and still not even come close to exhausting the, the, the in, what's there for us to observe, to see, to understand, to apply, to uh, to stand in awe of. You know, God's word is, is I mean, nothing else even comes close. And the great tragedy of today, the great tragedy of today is, is that Christian pastors, in the name of evangelism, I mean, that's, I mean, evangelism is a great motivation for, you know, doing things, okay? But in the name of evangelism, they have dumbed down, they have watered down, they have suppressed and mocked the in-depth, expositional, ex exegetical, 
uh, preaching and in-depth teaching of God's word. And as a result of it, we have a church today that is so anemic, so weak, so so completely vapid and shallow in their understanding of Scripture that they haven't got a snowball's chance in hell of being able to stand against the deceitful schemes of Satan. And in many ways, the people who attend these churches who mock and impugn and think that they can grow the kingdom of God without God's word, they've, they've fallen to the devil's schemes. And, um, you know, not to beat a dead horse here, but, you know, I'm still, still reeling uh, from what I saw uh, and heard at Ian Lawton's uh, C3 exchange. It's not a church anymore. And I really believe that that is the future of many of these seeker-driven and purpose-driven churches. Why? Because in their arrogance, they think they know better than God. And they're embarrassed by God's word. They're embarrassed by what it teaches. They're embarrassed by the cross itself. If the, if it weren't so, then it would be front and center. And so, you know, here on the second year anniversary of Pirate Christian Radio, I think it's good to, at least for a moment, pause and reflect and remember why Pirate Christian Radio was created in the first place. And uh, Pirate Christian Radio was created and, and with, this, with this understanding that pirate radio stations broadcast from outside of the system. And it's not that what we do is illegal. Instead, what we do here at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio would not be tolerated in many, if not most or all, Christian radio stations. What we do is the hard, hard work that needs to be done of proclaiming the truth, proclaiming, pro, pro, properly understanding and proclaiming God's law to condemn us of our sins and the gospel to offer us the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross, and to call out false teaching by name, by the person who's uh, teaching it, to rebuke those who teach it, and to call people to repentance of their false doctrine and to correct it with God's word. It's politically incorrect. And in many ways, it's methodologically incorrect in today's church. Well, I don't care uh, about today's uh, methodological uh, correctness. Instead, I'm just dumb enough to say, you know what? I don't understand God on my own. I know nothing about him if he hadn't revealed it. I don't know how God's kingdom is is grown. So I have to trust that God knows what he's doing and God knew what he was doing when he told us to do it this way. God said in Jesus Christ, that's by the way, Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. Uh, God told us to go to all nations and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Okay. Right on. He's God. I'm the creature. I don't... I'm not going to sit there and second guess Jesus. I'm not, I just am not going to do it. He told us to do that. And when you read the Acts of the Apostles, you know what the Apostles did? They did that. And you know what happened? God, not the Apostles, but God grew his church through his instruments, the Apostles. And God has grown his church through his instrument, that is the, the, the body of Christ, those who have been granted and given 
repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name through God's word, through the sacraments, through the means of grace, and have been brought into his kingdom, have been regenerated, had their heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. They've gone from being dead to alive in Christ, from being rebels against God to being called sons and daughters of God. Been, they've been regenerated. These are, the, these are the people whom God uses as his instruments to move his kingdom forward, and he's given them a task, and the way he wants them to do it is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Now, if you all ever listen to the Issues Etc. radio program, one of their bumpers, one of their outgoing messages, when they're cutting out to a commercial break, is uh, the message is the mission. Now, that particular bumper was, uh, you know, was created after I appeared on on uh, Issues Etc. to do an interview uh, several years ago. And we were talking about Rick Warren, and he was talking about the mission of God. And, and my quip, you know, at that time was the message is the mission. And that's correct. The message of the gospel, the good news, good news is message, right? Uh, the message is the mission. We are called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's the mission. The message is the mission. Okay? If God told us what he wants us to do is go to Bavaria and uh, get down to our skivvies and swim in uh, in the North Sea uh, in the dead of winter, then that would be the mission. But that's not what he's told us to do. Thank God. Okay? Instead, he's told us the message, the mission is this. I want you to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations and disciple them and teach them everything that uh, that Christ has told them that uh, has given us. I mean that's the you know that so you take Luke 24 and Matthew 28 you stick them together that's the mission. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and and Christ will be with us until the end. You know there's a lot of weird kind of almost creepy scary stories that uh, that are just permeating the news lately and it makes you wonder like what is going on in the world and i do um i don't know what's going on in the world but i know this <laughs> christ is in control he knows what's going on and i i i have so little information about what the big picture is i don't care i i don't know if he's coming back tomorrow but i'm going to live my life as if he's coming back tomorrow and like, you know, the church is going to be here for the next hundred thousand years. You know, so you, you can, it's, it's a it's a weird paradoxical way to live and I don't lose a lot of sleep over it. And, you know, Jesus Christ is Lord. I am just a creature. I am a created guy. I have no power of my own. I was born dead in trespasses and sins. My salvation isn't even my own work. It was the working of God, the Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I, I'm a servant of God. And all of my good works, well, they're doo-doo. You know, Jesus says, and after you've done everything you've been told to do, say you are a wicked servant because you've only done what you've been told to do. Okay. People say, you're so arrogant, you think you're right. No, I think God's word is right. And I just happen to be dumb enough to believe it. If that's arrogance, then you know you need to go get a dictionary and learn what arrogance is. Anyway, just some initial thoughts. So Pirate Christian Radio exists to 
proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. And we've put together you know, eight hours of, of original programming on a daily basis from guys that we think are faithful to the message. And as a result of being faithful to the message, they're faithful to the mission. You know, that's that's how it works here. And so if you're looking for an oasis of good preaching, of good thought-provoking talk radio that that deals honestly, intellectually, and in depth with what the Bible teaches, instead of giving you self-help pablum or the latest and greatest fad, then Pirate Christian Radio is a great place for you to... to Park your uh, your computer radio dial, um, you know, to point your podcasting on your on your iTunes account to, or to share with friends. And the reality is, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you all. And I I have to thank you all for partnering with us to make it possible for us to uh, survive these last two years. And uh, and the one thing that I, I've got to tell you is is that you all are very generous. And in our greatest times of need, when it, it looked like, well, Pirate Christian Radio, the ship is about ready to uh, take on water and maybe sink. Uh, you guys all have come through if, in every pinch for us. And uh, I got to thank you. I have to thank you because, you know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you all. So... Thank you very much for making it possible for Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio to uh, to to be here and do what we do on a daily basis uh, for you all. And we, you know, pray for us, keep us in your prayers, and um, and continue to support us as you have. Thank you. All right, moving along. What do we have on deck for today? Well, how are you gonna? How is your church gonna celebrate the Fourth of July? Well, Tommy Sparger who, by the way, was a runner-up last year in uh, our Worst Easter Sermon of the Year uh, <clears throat> contest. He uh, He's at North Point Church there in Missouri. And uh, we're, we're going to be talking about how they're going to be celebrating the 4th of July. They're going to have what they call a freedom splash, which is a baptism. And I'm going to play audio from a video that they've uh, that this uh, church has put up and just compare what they're saying about baptism to what God's Word says about baptism. And then, as promised yesterday, uh, Perry Noble is, um, well, he's waxing eloquent about vision again, and so we're going to be reading uh, one or two posts from his blog. He's launched into a new series. And then um, Scott McKnight, uh, who is one of the major observers of the emergent church, uh, he he has a question. Is ecology part of the gospel? <laughs> My answer: No, it isn't. And uh, and then finally, uh, for you know, to round out this hour, we're <laughs> remember last week we were talking about the leadership idol. Well, the Catalyst Conference are is, is you know one of these conferences. The Catalyst guys are like fully bought into this whole leadership idol thing. And you know, of course. You got to be relevant, and what's more relevant right now than the world than World Cup soccer? And so the folks over at Catalyst, I am not kidding. They have put up a uh, an article that plums the depths of the leadership lessons taught from the Vavuzela. <laughs> and you're saying, if you don't know what the Vavuzela is, don't worry. I will uh, I will give you uh, a little bit of education about the Vavuzela. Before we get to this profound leadership, I mean, seriously, I mean, (laughs) 
leadership principles of the Vavuzala. I just, wow, the world is coming to an end. And then, uh, and then for our sermon review today, we're going to do another good sermon review. This being our second year anniversary, I just did not feel up to the task of listening to <laughs> and reviewing a bad sermon. It, it, it takes a toll. And from time to time, I have to just step back and go, enough, enough. I have to recharge my mental and spiritual battery. I can't wait around in, in the dumpsters forever. I have to come out and get a breath of fresh air. And so uh, one of uh, one of the listeners and uh, f- uh, my friends on Facebook, he uh, he, he, he put a link to a to a great um, uh, lecture done by Alistair Begg a couple of weeks ago at the 2010 Ligonier National Conference. And the name of uh, uh, Alistair Begg's uh, presentation is called "Is the Exclusivity of Christ Un." Just that's right. Is the exclusivity of Christ unjust? And if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you'll notice that today I've spent quite a bit of time posting verses that have to do with um, the exclusive claims of Christ and the exclusive claims of Christianity. That there is no other name given by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ, and those who believe are are saved and those who do not believe are are, are condemned and and they remain under God's wrath. I've been posting verses like that, kind of um, in a in a way greasing the skids for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So with that, make yourself comfortable and uh, that's your your listener experience is always important to us. Feel free to wear fuzzy bunny slippers if the if the weather permits. In fact, it's cool to, it's cool down here in Indiana to the point where I'm enjoying an afternoon cup of decaf coffee. I don't normally do that when it's hot because, well, hot beverages on hot days with a guy who's well, uh, <laughs> what was the phrase I put I said the other day? I'm an underweight fat guy. Yeah, that's in honor of Ergen Kaner. Who uh, uh, said uh, f- uh, factual, but factually, uh, what are the, uh, factual statements that are self-contradictory? Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so uh, if you want to, fuzzy bunny slippers, okay. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, don't have a problem with that. Uh, remember, drunkenness is a sin, though. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And I don't have any music for this uh, particular segment coming up. But I, again, I just ask the question, how are you going to be spending – how is your church going to celebrate the 4th of July? The reality is is that the church I attend, we're not. You, you say, what? That's an abomination. No, it's not, actually. Um Listen, we've got more important stuff to focus on uh, you know, than the 4th of July – uh, now, I understand, you know, America's independence is a big deal, and I'm an American citizen, and and I will be celebrating the 4th of July with uh, with fireworks that in California would be illegal. I, I plan on doing that, and, you know, I will be having the backyard barbecue. I will be, you know, uh, ex, ex, you know exercising my patriotic duty to eat hot dogs, hamburgers, uh, uh, potato salad, and uh, sweet iced tea, you know. Um, I'll be doing all of that. Um, but when I go to church, uh, we've got more important stuff to do than celebrate the independence of the United States. We're going to be hearing God's word and uh, receiving the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And so, you know, we've got a, you know, our pastor, he's going to be preaching from the assigned gospel text for uh, for the Sunday. And the assigned gospel reading for the Sunday has nothing to do with the United States or the 4th of July. 
And that being the case, how are we going to celebrate it? By hearing God's word, having our sins forgiven, well, hearing of the forgiveness of our sins, and we're going to be receiving the Lord's Supper. That's how we're going to be celebrating. But um, Tommy Sparger over at um, North Point Church in uh, Missouri, here's a, he's, uh, they, he's got a blog post at TommySparger.com that says, Making a Big Splash This Fourth of July Weekend. And it says, uh, you don't want to miss this weekend at North Point Church. There will be a special dueling guitar performance, spectator pyrotechnics, and hundreds of people getting dunked at Freedom Splash. Now, Freedom Splash sounds like a, you know, a, a, an amusement park with, you know, water slides and stuff like that, but it's not. What is Freedom Splash? Well, it's a great way to begin your Independence Day festivities. Be sure to show up early for, uh, to the service or you will miss the good stuff. What is Freedom Splash? Well, Freedom Splash is a weekend designed for hundreds of families, adults, teenagers, and kids to get baptized. We invite you to take this step this weekend. We will have two giant swimming pools set up outside the main entrance. After attending service, make your way out to the pools, sign in, get baptized. And um, Jesus asked us to make our faith public by being baptized. So invite your family and friends to come and witness this step in your faith journey. You'll also receive an awe, an awesome Freedom Splash t-shirt to wear the day of the event. So... Now, I, I got just got to challenge this, this statement here. He said, Tommy Sparger said, Jesus asked us to make our faith public by being baptized. Uh, to which I simply asked this question, where did Jesus say that in the Bible? Again, Tommy Sparger says, Jesus asked us to make our faith public by being baptized. I don't recall a single verse in the New Testament especially the Gospels, where Jesus said, I want you to make your faith public by being baptized. The Bible doesn't teach that about baptism at all. And it's time for people to wake up to this. Okay, Now, um, I'm going to um, play for you audio from a video from North Point Church. And um, I just want you to hear, you know, they're, they're talking about Freedom Splash here. And in their explanation of Freedom Splash, they're going to lay out their teaching regarding baptism. And the, the, the name of the video is, What is Baptism? Here, here we go. What is baptism? It's actually really simple. Literally, to be dunked, dipped, or washed, uh, it simply means that someone is ready to show the world that they are a Christ follower. Okay. Really, it's that simple. Okay, if it's that simple, then the Bible says that, right? That's what the Bible teaches. We can find verses in the Bible that say those words. Okay, let me back it up. Okay, but this is Troy Hartman from North Point Church. Literally, to be dunked, dipped, or washed, uh, it simply means that someone is ready to show the world that they are a Christ follower. So why are Christ followers? Yeah, where in the Bible does it say that? Where does it say that baptism is your... That you're basically ready to show the world that you're a Christ follower. Where does the Bible say that? And some of you are sitting there going, well, that's what I was taught about baptism. And I know I, I, you, you've been taught wrong. The Bible doesn't say any such thing. Let's continue. First to be baptized. Well, first really is obedience. Maybe better said surrender. When someone chooses to follow Christ, they're saying that they don't want to live for themselves anymore. They want to live for Jesus. They want to trust their lives into him. Now, notice this emphasis on baptism is all about what you do. This is baptism as 
being preached as a work. This is baptism as being preached through the law. But you know what's missing from this whole thing are any verses from the Bible that even remotely explain baptism. There, you know, and there's a good reason why there's no verses being discussed here in this video. Because not one single verse, not one, teaches that baptism is this. Not one. And one of the first initial instructions Jesus gives a Christ follower is to be baptized. This is the second reason why we do baptisms. It's simply to go public with your faith. Scripture is huge on symbolism because behind every symbol is deep relational meaning. Just like a wedding ring symbolizes that you are married, baptism symbolizes that you are a follower of Christ. Baptism is a beautiful celebration of changed lives and we are so excited to be able to celebrate this opportunity with you. All right, so that's um, North Point Church's uh, explanation about what baptism is. Get your Bible out. That's right, you're going to need your Bible. And uh, we're going to just spend a little bit of time in the Scriptures. If you have your Bible, please flip over to Acts chapter 2. Specifically, I'm going to be looking at verse 38. But what I would like you to do, and I'm going to say this in, you know, in context, because... Again, our three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation are context, context, and, well, uh, context. Now, just because you only hear a verse doesn't mean that the person pre you know, teaching that single verse is teaching it wrong. You always, though, have to check to make sure that the, the emphasis that they're putting on that verse is justified by the context of the passage. So Acts chapter 2, hang on a second here, I'm going to... Pull this up in the Greek because I th yeah I want to point something out in the Greek here. Acts chapter two. Um, okay, there's my Greek New Testament. Okay, um, this is the day of Pentecost. Peter is preaching his great Pentecost sermon. Okay, I'm going to start at verse 29. So this is kind of like the closing ideas in Peter's great Pentecost sermon. Here's what he says, brothers. I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God, Therefore, exalted at the right hand, uh, uh, God, sorry, this Jesus God, God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all of those of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, this the, the they is the, um, is the crowd. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the, of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, listen, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, now, the Greek word in uh, verse 38 is baptizo. And in this particular case, um, 
the uh, the voice that this is being spoken of in the Greek is the passive voice. Be baptized. Passive. In other words, when something is happening in the passive voice, it's being done to you. You're not the one doing it. It's being done to you. So if I were to say I hit Johnny, okay, uh, you know, Johnny would be, you know, Johnny would be the one receiving it passively and I would be the one actively hitting him. He would be the passive recipient of the hit and I would be the one actively hitting. Okay. In the Greek, it's, this happens in the Greek. So here, Peter is saying, repent and be baptized. Passive voice. And it's for the forgiveness of sins. And you're saying, wait a second. Are you saying that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins? What does the text say? What's the reason why the people are being baptized? Huh? What does the text say? Forget my opinions. Forget your opinions. What does the text say? Okay. Now, let me remind you, okay, of the Nicene Creed. Okay. The Nicene Creed talks about baptism. This is a fourth century creed. This goes way, way back in Christian history. I read from the third section of the Nicene Creed, which states, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, and who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The Nicene Creed picks up on this biblical teaching, and what does it say? I believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. Now, I've just given you one verse, and already I've given you more biblical teaching on baptism than... Tommy Sparger and, and this Hartman guy from uh, North Point Church. But wait, there's more. Yeah, that's right. Flip on over to Romans chapter 6. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Romans chapter 6, and let me teach you a little bit more about baptism. Okay? In uh, Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking, basically going to give a, a, a silly argument, you know, talking about, well, if the gospel's so free, should we go uh, just sin so the grace might increase? Listen to this. That's the question that Paul's going to put on the table and listen to his answer. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Hang on a second here. Yeah, there we go again. Another passive. All of us who have been baptized, passive. Okay, it's it's there in the Greek. This is uh, uh, first plural aorist passive indicative. Yeah, it sounds like Greek class. <sighs> Focus on the passive part. Anyway, y- you get what I'm saying here. This is so. All of us who have been baptized, we this has been done to us. Have been baptized into Jesus Christ and were baptized into His death. We were buried 
therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So here um, here it's very clear that uh, we, all of us who've been baptized were baptized into Christ, baptized into his death, and baptized into his resurrection. By the way, this explains the whole passive part of baptism because you can't do this yourself. It has to be done to you by God, right? Now, if you have your Bibles, um, let's flip on over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, okay? And the verse that I'm going to focus in on is verse 27, but I'll put it into context. And uh, what I'll do, I'll we'll start at verse 23. Now, therefore... Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law and imprisoned until the until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified. That's declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Okay? So those according to Galatians chapter 3 verse 27, those of us who have been baptized, I wonder if this one's also passive. Hang on a second here. Uh, uh yep, there it is. Uh second plural aorist passive indicative. Um a a baptiste it baptiste Baptiste, there it is, sorry, tongue twister. Passive. For those of us who have been baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. So and when we talk about baptism, then we can biblically and correctly say that in baptism, our sins are forgiven. We've been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, and that we have been clothed with Christ. These are biblical ways of talking about baptism. Now, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Titus chapter 3, okay? Listen to this, Titus chapter 3. I start at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, and to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish. We were once disobedient and led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So you could say that talking about baptism, it's a washing of regeneration. That's a biblical way to describe baptism. This is what God's word says. Now, I could give you other verses, and I'll give them to you now. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Take a look at that. And 1 Peter chapter 3, which is always a fun one. Um, I might want to read this one. 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, Starting at verse 18, I read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but being made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is only eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now baptism, which corresponds to this, this water of the flood, uh, now saves you, not a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the noun in that um, sentence, neuter singular nominative, nominative, and the verb in that sentence is saves. You can take that whole thing down to say baptism now saves you. Now, all of this may contradict what you have been taught about baptism. I understand that. Your job is to compare what I have told you the scriptures say to the clear teaching of the word of God. If you can find verses that support the teaching of uh, North Point Church and and Tommy Sparger and uh, Tom Hartman, that, you know, that it's letting the whole world know that you've made a decision to become a Christ follower, then give me the verses. Cough them up. Let's see them. Lay them out on the table. And if they aren't there, then you need to repent of that false teaching, and you need to adopt and subscribe to the clear teaching of the Word of God regarding what baptism is, who does it, and what it does. All right, we're a little late on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst. Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. <laughs> You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They're our righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And you're like, no, 
and roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power responding, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of... Giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. Warning, if you turn baptism into your work, you've missed the whole point of baptism. Baptism is something God does to you. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. 
And when you uh, join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and the ongoing mission of Pirate Christian Radio as we enter our third broadcast year today. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute to Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, uh, Perry Noble, um, <clears throat> he's got a, a couple of new pieces. I'll read the first one. The name of this one is called You've Got Vision, Big Deal. This is from perrynoble.com from June 29th, 2010. <clears throat> Here's uh, what uh, Perry Noble says. He says, last week I tweeted, that is now a verb, I hate that fact. Uh, Three leadership thoughts that got quite a response, so much that I wanted to follow up with them in this week's posts. Number one, a vision is useless in the hands of a person who lacks the discipline to do what needs to be done to make it happen. What? What kind of vision are you talking about, Perry? Are you know when? Uh, yeah. By, by the way, Perry doesn't want to do what's been done already before. He's expecting new, never before given information by God to the church and to him as a leader. Well, actually, to only vision casting pastors on the new thing that God is doing. <clears throat> Let me read. Perry says, "I have always said that we need to dream huge dreams, brother." We serve a God who can really do so much more than all we can ever do or imagine. In fact, one of the things I feel that probably insults God is the fact that so many times our dreams are so small, especially when we consider what Jesus said in John 14, 12. However, dreaming big is just one aspect of accomplishing great things for Jesus. We must have the dis- discipline to do what needs to be done in order to do our part in making the dreams that God has placed inside of us come to life. Crickets, yeah, okay. <clears throat> Let's see here. Um, God fills us with vision, but he, can, but he also gives us the gifts and the talents needed to make that vision become a reality. And... To sit back and wait on God to do it all for you isn't being spiritual. It's just being lazy. I don't need, where is any of this taught in the Bible? Where is any of this taught in the Bible? I mean, when he's waxing eloquent about visions, it reminds me of like Ezekiel chapter 13. If you're not familiar with Ezekiel chapter 13, take your Bible and flip on over there. I'll be reading that shortly here. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 1 is where I start. Uh, from the ESV, which I lovingly refer to as the English Sanctified Version, I read, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel, who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Yahweh, God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit, and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone into the breaches or built a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the days of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, quote, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. 
and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken to you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, because you have uttered falsehood and have seen lying visions, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain on, and you, O great hailstorms, will fall and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, Where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind and break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus I will spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is no more are those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord. So, um... Yeah, let me read just a little bit more. And you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own minds, prophesy against them and say, thus says the Lord, woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all their wrists and make veils on the heads of the persons of every statue in the hunt for souls. You will hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive you have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people who listens to lies. Therefore, I am against you, says the Lord God. Yeah, God doesn't, is not, um, when you read throughout the scriptures, especially the uh, the writings of the prophets, uh, God is uh, he gets really ticked off at idolatry and he really um, gets hacked off and uh, punishes those who speak lying visions, who whose visions are are not from him, but from people's own stomachs, from their own heart, from their own mind and not from the counsel of God. So here, you know, I don't know what it is with the seeker-driven movement, but beating in the heart of this thing is this idea that you can receive direct visions from God, and God will directly tell you what methods to employ in order to, uh, yeah, uh-huh. The problem is those methods contradict what God's Word teaches. Therefore, we can throw them out as being false visions. And God does not deal kindly with those who say they're receiving visions from God when they're not. 
something to consider. Next time you're tempted to talk about a vision that God has given you, think twice. Read Ezekiel 13. All right, one more thing before we go into our second break. This is just crazy. I, I'm going to, the ecology part of the gospel, I'm going to save that for a, another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Maybe tomorrow, maybe later. I'll save that. But yeah, remember the, uh, I've been talking about leadership as, you know, these leadership guys have made leadership into an idol. Well, I kid you not. Uh, I've got from, oh man, uh, from uh, CatalystSpace.com, they, there's an article written by Brett Trapp from TrappSTR.com entitled The Five Laws of Vavuzula Leadership. Yeah, these seeker-driven guys, I mean, they always have to be relevant and in the moment, you know. Got to be uh, hip and what's, with what's happening now. Well, n- what's happening now is the World Cup, even though the U.S. is no longer in the World Cup, we've been... Eliminated, but the, uh, hey, you know, the world is gathered in South Africa for the World Cup, and the Vavuzela is is the big thing. If you're not familiar with what the Vavuzela is, um, it's a horn. It's um, here's a news story uh, about the Vavuzela. Here we go. It's an old saying: When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Now it's Confederations Cup time, and if you're in South Africa, whether you like it or not, you got to do the Vavuzela. The confit Vuvuzela, that's how you pronounce it. Cup has brought a cross-section of soccer lovers into the stadium, but not everyone has been entirely happy with the icon of SA soccer culture. And please do not blow the Vuvuzelas. The Vuvuzela is the cylindrical horn which fans blow to egg on their teams on match day. It sounds like angry bees. Its traditional roots stem from the blowing of a kudu horn across the hills and valleys of villages to bring the elders together for meetings. So it's bound to be noisy. And they're making a lot of noise, especially with those horns. And I know FIFA were thinking of banning the uh, the horns for the sound that they make. Blown with no sense of when and how, the difficulty of FIFA's decision is clearly evident. Oh, this is so relevant. Without a coordinated rhythm and blown indiscriminately, it can be construed as nothing but a mess and unnecessary noise. There is, of course, the smaller variety, which sounds like a duck on speed or the wailing of a terror. <laughs> it sounds like a duck on speed. How many ducks have you witnessed on speed? ill child for this one there is simply no excuse okay that that's just has got to stop how important is it to be blowing that vuvuzela in a stadium when your team is playing all right enough you, you get the idea so the vuvuzela that's the right way to pronounce it i know the vuvuzela is the is the quintessential relevant thing of the moment right it's it, it's the thing right now and well you know the uh, those uh those seeker driven purpose driven guys who are completely addicted to leadership they can't let uh, a thing of the moment go without trying to attach some kind of significance to it so i read from the catalystspace.com website the five laws of vuvuzela leadership <clears throat> Uh, Despite the U.S.'s recent loss to Ghana, the World Cup has been a nice kick to America's lazy summer sports schedule. Obscure football stars have galloped into our homes in HD brilliance, but the true star of these World Cup games 
hasn't been a soccer player. It's been the three-foot-long piece of plastic, the Vuvuzela, the buzzing instrument blasted by the South Africans at soccer matches. It's only a few days. Uh, in only a few days, the Vuvuzela became a sensation with sales at, at Amazon.com rocketing 1,000%. Social networks were buzzing, too, and the buzz wasn't positive. The Twitter space nearly melted down with Vuvuzela angst. When the games began, 29% of people tweeting about the instrument used the word annoying to describe it. That's the correct word. Uh, nevertheless, the Vuvuzela has been frequent a frequent guest in Twitter's trending topics for a couple of weeks now. Love it or hate it, people can't stop talking about it. But the Vuvuzela isn't all bad. We can actually learn from it. In honor of the World Cup's true power player, here are the five laws of Vuvuzela leadership. <clears throat> Number one, create simply. The Vuvuzela is not exactly a complex product. It's a single piece of plastic. The Vuvuzela requires no instructional manual and no explanation because it's simple. It's intuitive. A cave dweller could figure it out. Uh, when... <laughs> When leaders cr create, they begin adding, adding, adding features, footnotes, supplements grow like uh, uh, kudzu, and uh, we can do this. It's fun. It's the battle cry of the leader drunk on ideas. Those bumbling swigs of innovation taste good, but they can't. They can be lethal. Leaders must fight for simplicity. They must engage the heart, and the heart doesn't play nice with complexity. The heart likes simple. The pull towards addition addition is strong. Subtraction takes discipline. Really, all of that from a piece of plastic. That was number one. But I'm just, I I can't read any more of this. I'll, I'll I'll send out a Twitter with a link to it. This is ridiculous. N number two, uh, plan epic experiences. Vuvuzelas have become famous for the experiences they create. Hang on a second here. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, uh, uh, number three leadership uh, principle from the Vuvuzela is linked to great stories. The Vuvuzela is the is buzzworthy because it's linked to great stories. Oh, whatever. Number four, lead amongst the people. The Vuvuzela stationed behind a computer is worthless. A Vuvuzela sitting in an isolated office is pointless. A Vuvuzela with a cell phone can't accomplish much. A Vuvuzela it, it only do its job when it's united with a person. Oh, ridiculous. Number five, do one thing well. A French horn plays lots of notes, and a flute makes a lovely uh, cornucopia of sounds, but the Vuvuzela plays only one note, and it's B-flat. And it's darn good at it. <laughs> oh, no. So we're going to have Vuvuzela churches now whose, whose leaders have bought into Vuvuzela leadership. <sighs> it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, and don't email me Vuvuzela sounds. Uh, <laughs> my email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. 
We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, president and founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They are designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit CARM.org, that's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount. of Fighting for the Faith. Good sermon review today, or good lecture. Yeah, I didn't want uh, my, our two-year anniversary for Pirate Christian Radio to be marred with a bad... Well, <sighs> you get what I'm saying. All right, let's cue up the uh, sermon review music. Here we go. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. 
Today's sermon, well, it's not really a sermon, but it's a good biblical lesson from Alistair Begg from the 2010 or 2010 Ligonier National Conference that just concluded. And the name of it is The Exclusivity of Christ Unjust? Question mark. Is the exclusivity of Christ unjust? Are we just a bunch of rotten, arrogant, bigoted, low-life, narrow-minded scumbags because we proclaim what Jesus said and what the scriptures say? That he's exclusively our source of salvation? Well, Alistair Begg would beg to take issue with that question. <laughs> uh, pun intended. Man, I'm a, that was bad. Uh, anyway, let's kill, just kill the music. Yeah, I, I destroyed that. Um, yeah, bad, bad joke. I apologize for my bad joke. So without any further ado, here is Alistair Begg on whether or not the exclusivity of Christ is unjust. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John and chapter 3. And as you're turning there, may I say thank you for a kind welcome and introduction. And congratulations to the United States team for managing to tie earlier today. They really should have won. Now, I want to point something out. Alistair Begg will not be blowing the Vuvuzela. Just want to let you know that. And uh, I don't know what has happened to England since I came down here, but it wasn't, it wasn't looking very good. I want to read, actually, from three passages of Scripture. I'm going to read just briefly here from John chapter 3 and then from John chapter 7. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. And then in John chapter 7 and verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And then finally from Acts and from 
chapter 4, and from verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Well, just a brief prayer before we look at this subject together. Our gracious God and loving Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather in this way and to benefit from the instruction that we have been receiving from your word. And we pray that as we turn again to it now in the dying embers of this afternoon, that you will grant to us clarity of thought, that you will give to me brevity of expression, that you will give to us humility of heart, in order that as you conduct that divine dialogue with our souls, whereby your spirit brings your word to bear upon our hearts and lives, that we might be touched and instructed and changed by it. For we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. In the mid-20th century, Archbishop William Temple wrote a book entitled Towards the Conversion of England. And at the beginning of chapter 2, he made this statement. The gospel is true always and everywhere, or it is not a gospel at all or true at all. The gospel is true always and everywhere, or it is not a gospel at all or true at all. But he also went on to observe, quotes, the church has become confused and uncertain in its proclamation of the message. And around that same time, Professor Douglas Webster recorded the observation of a Buddhist monk who said, to the Eastern religious, it looks as if Christianity has reached the stage in adolescence when the child is slightly ashamed of his father and embarrassed when talking about him. And in the 60s, when John Stott wrote his memorable book, Our Guilty Silence, he suggested then that the church found that its lips were sealed, its tongues tied, either, he said, because we lack a thorough knowledge of the gospel or a conviction about its truth or both. And here we are, half a century on at least from Archbishop William Temple, and the challenge remains. To tell the truth is a tough business, especially in a culture that re rejects the very idea of truth as something which is fixed and universal 
and objective and absolute. And indeed, we have to acknowledge that one of the reasons that people turn away from Christianity is simply because of the exclusivity of the truth. Stephen Prothera, who is a professor of religion at Boston University, has just written a new book entitled God is Not One, The Eight Rival Religions That Run the World and Why Their Differences Matter. And reinforcing this notion of the challenge of truth-telling in the present uh, framework, he writes in his introduction as follows. At least since the first petals of the counterculture bloomed across Europe and the United States in the 1960s, it has been fashionable to affirm that all religions are beautiful and all are true. This claim which reaches back to All Religions Are One, which was written in 1795 by the English poet and printmaker and prophet William Blake, is as odd, he says, as it is intriguing. No one argues that different economic systems or political regimes are one and the same. Capitalism and socialism are so obviously at odds that their differences hardly bear mentioning. The same goes for democracy and monarchy. Yet scholars continue to claim that religious rivals such as Hinduism and Islam, Judaism and Christianity are, by some miracle of the imagination, essentially the same. And this view resounds in the echo chamber of popular culture, not least in Dan Brown's multi-million dollar Da Vinci Code franchise. We are called as believers to affirm what the Bible makes clear. And in order to trace a line through the challenge of this uh, particular talk, I want us to think in terms of its content and uh, then secondly its context and then thirdly uh, what it means to make contact in our culture concerning it. First of all, in the light of what I've read and in light of what that affirms, we read our Bibles and discover straightforwardly that it speaks of there being one way to God through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. There is little problem in contemporary America with the first half of that verse. You could sell a lot of t-shirts to a lot of people, provided the second half of the verse does not appear on the t-shirt. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is only one way. The Bible also affirms that there is only one mediator. There is only one mediator between man and God. And that mediator, says Paul to Timothy, is the man Christ Jesus. And thirdly, as we've just heard in Peter's proclamation after the healing of the man at the gate beautiful, there is only one name in which salvation is to be found. And so if we're going to take seriously the instruction of the Bible, if we're going to live as believing Christian people, we accept the fact that Jesus' name is above every name and that all of history is moving towards a day when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, just to hear myself say that, and just to think about the context out of which we have come today in terms of our contemporary journalistic world and the world of arts and science, is to realize how profoundly revolutionary such a notion is. One way through Jesus, one mediator in Jesus, and one name, the name of Jesus. Now, Peter, when he makes that statement, as we've read it in Acts 4, is responding to the inquiry of the religious establishment, and he does so in a way that is direct, it is unequivocal, and it is at the same time unapologetic. He is not, in his words, offering some kind of academic or abstract proposition. He is not suggesting that what he is affirming is up for debate. It is there so that other opinions may be offered and his opinion may be altered on the strength of such offerings. No, his statement is direct, it is unequivocal, and it is unapologetic. It was in his day, and it is in our own day, politically incorrect. But it was not logically incorrect. It may not have been that which people wanted to hear, certainly not the religious establishment, certainly not the Roman authorities. But the statement made by Peter was a logical deduction from the facts as he found them. In many ways, his statement is the great fulfillment of the promise of Jesus to his apostles that when the Spirit of God was poured out upon them, then they would be brought into truth in a way that they had never quite fathomed it before. And somewhere in this period of time, post-resurrection and now post-Pentecost, as all of the pieces of the jigsaw have fallen into place for Peter, he is able to make this straightforward affirmation. And the, the, he, along with his colleagues, has come to the clear conviction concerning the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the affirmation that there is no other Savior than Jesus because there is no other person who is qualified to save. That is actually what he is affirming. And that is to affirm the content of Scripture. It is a reminder to us that the Christian claim starts from an entirely different place than any other claim by any other religious entity in our world today. It is a reminder to us that the Christian claim also challenges the, not the notions that begin simply with man's rationale. And it is a reminder to us of the fact that what we are affirming when we make these claims is the aff affirmation of the fact that God himself has come and taken the initiative in reaching down to us. Says Bruce Milne in his most helpful book, Know the Truth, there is no road from man's intellectual and moral perception to a genuine knowledge of God. The only way to knowledge of God is for God to freely place himself within the range of our perception and renew our fallen understanding. Hence, if we are to know God and have any adequate basis for our Christian understanding and experience, revelation is indispensable. 
And it is out of that conviction and out of the reality of that experience that Peter and the rest of the apostles make these straightforward affirmations. Well, of course, we could spend much longer on content than that, but it is really to bring coals to Newcastle if I were to go much further in making these affirmations. Let us then think of the context, first of all, the context in which the gospel was proclaimed in the days of Scripture itself, and then in terms of our own context. Let's not be so naive as to think that when this message was proclaimed, it was somehow uh, absorbable by the contemporary culture of Peter's day. It was, as the Bible reminds us, offensive to the Jew, and it was absolute foolishness to the Gentile. To the mind of the intellect, it was regarded as a ridiculous notion, and to the monotheistic mind of the Jew, it was regarded as something of a blasphemy. And within a relatively short period of time, Christians were under pressure to capitulate to the notion that Jesus was maybe something more than a man, but he was not quite God. Or to succumb to the idea that Jesus might be seen as perhaps just one of the greatest of the angels. And the writer to the Hebrews knocks that notion on the head fairly straightforwardly as he writes the prologue uh, to that most Old Testament of New Testament books. If the early Christians had been prepared to have Jesus simply included in the Roman pantheon of the time, then they would have managed to avoid persecution. But they didn't, and they couldn't. The common greetings of the Roman world, uh, which affirmed the essential deity of Caesar as their leader and uh, sovereign, meant that as they walked uh, in the thoroughfares with each other, they would affirm on a daily basis that Caesar is Lord. And as Christians, they took the opportunity to say, no, that actually Jesus is Lord. They were beginning to understand that every knee would finally bow to Jesus. And therefore, there was a radical difference in the way in which they viewed uh, the culture of their time. All they had to do was simply allow Jesus to be included amongst the other deities of the time. Just don't make a fuss. Just find a place for him. Why do you have to be these kind of people? Why do you have to make such a fuss and bother about Jesus of Nazareth? We're perfectly happy to have a place for Jesus. Look, we already have a plinth for him. And you can put a bust of Jesus there just with the rest. No, they said, we won't do that. Then they said, well, if you don't do that, we'll turn you upside down. We'll stick you in the ground and we'll set fire to you. If you don't do that... We will force you to capitulate or you will die. And you've read enough church history to know that the context in which the affirmation of the exclusive claims of Jesus was made was one which resulted in the death of those who held most forcefully to it. But we're a long way away from there and today is a different day, is it not? Here we are in America. Persecution may not be physical for most of us, but it certainly is intellectual. It is social in the everyday events of life. And the prevailing mood, which allows us to even face this question, is a mood which sets itself apart from certainties. That is apart from 
every certainty except the certainty that there are no certainties. The notion that somehow or another uh, there is truth to be discovered and to be defined is increasingly missing at every point in our society. If you want to take it at a trivial level, then perhaps along with me you were desperately waiting for the end of Lost. Perhaps you've watched it for all of these years, trying to make sense of an increasingly nonsensical plot the closer we got to the end. Why was I so foolish as to think that there would be any resolution? Why was I so silly to think that we would discover who everybody was or what they were or where they fitted? It didn't matter a bit. It was largely irrelevant. And for others of you who suffer severely from ADD and can watch that program 24, then you know that that is the world in which you live. You don't go looking uh, to discover truth. Uh, you just make your truth. Uh, you just... Uh, just uh, find it as you go along. I, I won't quote any more from Prothero except this one quote. I find this quite fascinating. He says that in teaching his students at Boston University, they are allergic to argument. Though they will debate the merits of the latest Coen Brothers movie or U2 CD, they agree not to disagree about almost everything, especially when it comes to religion. Young Americans, at least, are far more likely to say, I feel than I think, or God forbid, I believe. I think or I feel, but definitely not, I believe. Now, you see, because meaning in our culture has pretty well collapsed. And as a result, anybody who is going to come and say that there is a large overarching notion which will make sense of the big questions of our lives and that the predicament of life is as defined in the Bible and therefore the solution to that predicament is as found in Jesus are going to be laughed out of court. And not just by those who have stood on the stage of history in the past but by the present new atheist arguments. And you know that Hitchens, who is the friendlier face than Dawkins of the Englishmen that are around America at the moment, is still absolutely convinced that religion is ostensibly evil and poisonous, and none more poisonous than the concoction which is offered up by people who attend conferences like the Ligonier Conference and seek to wrestle with questions such as this. And what they're really affirming is that if you believe in God, it's not because there is a God out there to, in, in whom you can believe, but just because you have been pre-programmed to believe in God. That the evolutionary process has made it such that it has been useful for our forebears to have these strange and bizarre notions. And so we're kind of hardwired and we're pretty well stuck with it. Unless, of course, we would read the books by Hitchens and Dawkins who would set us to rights. It's very interesting, isn't it, in The God Delusion, that uh, Dawkins never, act, uh, never interacts apart from maybe three sentences with the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Never takes it on, sets it completely aside, dismisses it just in a, with a cursory glance. I find that very significant. Because when you think back to Schaefer in the 60s, Schaefer didn't deviate very far from the resurrection of Jesus. He was always there. He was always saying, let's settle this matter of the resurrection. For if he is alive, then we have something to discuss. If he is dead and buried in a Palestinian tomb, then frankly, let us get on with life. 
It is in this context, then, that we are affirming these truth claims as we find them in the New Testament. A context in which people are not encouraged to seek out objective truth, but to settle for subjective feelings. And so to ask what a text means is passé. The real question is, what does it mean to me? And some of you are surprised by the statement because that's when your Bible studies, your home Bible studies, really begin to take off. When Mrs. Jenkins begins to tell you what the passage means to Mrs. Jenkins. And now we're off to the races. But unless you've got someone in the room who can explain what the passage means, nobody should give a flying rat's tail what it means to Mrs. Jenkins. Because it is frankly irrelevant. And now we're going to turn the Bible... Here, here, flying rat's tail. I'm going to have to use that again. The same thing. We're going to deconstruct the Bible on the strength of what it means to me. So that it won't be the affirmations in which we believe, but it will be the sensations that are engendered, the things that we begin to feel, the stimulants that come our way. And before we know where we are, we have imbibed so much of the spirit of the age that we are unable to counteract it because we are actually drinking at the same fountain. The prevailing notions in matters of religion are, I think, as follows. First, that there is no unique revelation in history. There's no unique revelation in history. There are all kinds of ideas and concepts, but in other words, to make that affirmation is to say that the opening of Hebrews is just bunk. It just is an absolutely silly statement. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. There is no unique revelation in history, so we're told. Two, there are many different ways in which we can reach divine reality. And this is Prothera's point in this book. It's a fascinating expose, I think. Thirdly, that all formulations of religious truth or experience are by their very nature inadequate expressions of that experience. And therefore, fourthly, it is necessary to harmonize as much as possible all religious ideas and experiences so as to create one universal religion for all mankind. And the closest we're getting to it at the moment is probably in terms of ecology. And the less we know of theology and the more we know about ecology and the more we will dispense with biblical theology, then of course we may be able to join hands with everyone around the entire universe on the strength of uh, uh, James Cameron's work in Avatar. Uh, Just a small aside on Avatar. Isn't, Isn't that an amazing piece of work? fascinating on multiple levels and yet how bizarre did you did you listen to people when they came out of there talking did you read the blogs the people saying now there's the kind of world I'd like to live in now that's the kind of universe for which we long of course it is in one sense they're longing for a garden for a perfect garden for a garden in which there is no animosity there is no sin The longing of the human heart for that which he doesn't know it's searching for. And yet the answers that are offered in the movie are so fantastic. I mean, those creatures with the tails 
and then they stick their tails up the trees. And then they kind of plug in. It's like, an, it's like a Prius or something. That is, it, as you go along the road, you find a place and you stick it in. And then, and you're fully realized. And I looked at that. I fell asleep during that for a while. And I looked at it again. And I stepped out. And I couldn't believe it. You know, the people say, isn't, isn't that amazing? I mean, that is fantastic stuff. I said, no, wait a minute. Hang on. How about we talk about Jesus of Nazareth, a historically verifiable figure who lived... No, 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 I couldn't believe in that. No, I can't believe in that. No, 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 no. Excuse me, i got to go stick my tail up a tree. I, I can't... I don't have time. I don't have time for those conversations. Oh, no. No, 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 no. No, I'm going to have to think. I'll have to think about that. It's much easier just stick my tail up a tree. It's much easier. And the fifth notion is that all the religions agree on the big things, they only disagree on the little things. And nothing can be further from the truth. And yet it has been baptized into orthodoxy. The claims of religion are exclusive claims. Christianity is not unique in exclusive claims. Hinduism makes claims that are exclusive to Hinduism. Buddhism makes claims that are exclusive to Buddhism. And by those same claims, they exclude non-Buddhists. We're not out on our own in making these statements. John Dixon, in his book, Promoting the Gospel, which I recommend to you, distinguishes very helpfully between what he refers to as popular pluralism, pluralism, which I've just described to you, and philosophical pluralism which views religions as being merely the mediators of spiritual reality. This is a very, very clever play. And what it manages to do is to say, yes, all of those things are present in these religions, but they're really just metaphors. They're really just symbols. They, in the distinguishing features of each religion, are themselves pointing forward to a reality which is through them and beyond them and where true unity is to be found. And says Dixon, by describing religions as true in a manner none of them has affirmed before and false in all the ways they have always affirmed, pluralism assumes an intellectual high ground that far exceeds any of the claims of world religions. Thirdly, let's think in terms of contact. Anytime somebody has a talk that has three uh, words all beginning with the same letter, one of them will be a bit of a dud. And, uh, and, and we've, we've, we've come to my dud. Contact is not so good, but I did desperately want another C. <laughs> An awareness of the content of the message, which I'm going to assume... An awareness of the context in which we are called to declare the message does not automatically mean that any one of us is going to be particularly effective at doing so. In other words, we have to make contact. We can go and sit on a high hill and read books, fill our heads full of esoteric notions and arguments, be absolutely convinced of the validity of that to which we hold true, and yet when it comes to being engaged with friends and work colleagues and family members 
who are far, far removed from these kind of affirmations, we discover that we're not doing so well. There are three factors, I think, that need to be addressed in making contact. Not the X factor, but the A factor, the T factor, and the R factor. A being the arrogance factor. The arrogance factor. In a context where there, are no, where there is no truth, but only truths, no principles, but only preferences, we face the challenge of being regarded as arrogant for proclaiming Jesus. And the argument is a pretty simple one from those who oppose us. It goes really like this. You say you are a Christian. Well, I thought that Christians were supposed to be humble. If you were humble, you would not continue to suggest that Christianity has got it right and others have got it wrong. This again, you see, is representative of the notion that somehow or another we're all together and that eventually when you go up the mountainside, you arrive at the same place, that when everyone examines, examines the elephant, the man, the man from Hindustan, that they all get their own piece of the puzzle, but eventually it all works out. But you see, that's actually not true because the God who produced the Bible could not possibly be the God who produced the Koran or the Buddhist scriptures or the Hindu scriptures. Because the portraits of God, Jesus, the afterlife, offered in those sacred books are so contradictory that unless God is actually contradicting himself, it is just not possible for that to be the case. This arrogance question needs to be addressed from two sides. This is the first side. What Chesterton refers to as the dislocation of humility. He, he writes and he says, we've reached a stage, and this is a while ago, where we have humility in the wrong place. A man, he says, was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We are now on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe the multiplication table. We need to understand that truth is not a matter of pride or humility. It's a matter of fact. It's not about pride or humility. It's a matter of fact. Peter Cottrell says, as Lamb says that Jesus wasn't crucified, we say he was. Only one of us can be right. Judaism says that Jesus was not the Messiah. We say he was. Only one of us can be right. Hinduism says that God has often been incarnate. We say only once, and we can't both be right. But having said that, here's the second element in the arrogance factor. I have a sneaking suspicion that some of our affirmations are justifiably charged as arrogant. Not the truth itself, but the way that truth is conveyed. The tone, the flavor can so easily be arrogant. Is it possible that some of us as Christians are guilty of ridiculing other religions? Ridiculing the adherents of other religions? Snide in our comments, harsh in our judgments, disgraceful in our interpersonal relationships, 
negative in addressing the ism because actually we have no real contact with anyone who comes from that background. Afraid of any form of dialogue because we probably are unsure of what we believe. Maybe Archbishop William Temple is right. Maybe we are confused. Maybe we are embarrassed. Maybe we are on our back foot. Maybe our culture has squeezed us in such a way that we're liable to come out fighting. It is only in light of the evil of idolatry and the finality of Christ that we are able to establish contact. And a contact that is, that is there on the basis of authenticity and humility and integrity and sensitivity. It's possible to hold to the truth in a way that undermines the very truth to which we hold. T, the tolerance factor. One of the reasons for our silence is because we're afraid of being thought narrow or intolerant. And so what we need is a dictionary. We need to rescue tolerance from the mistaken notion that tolerance means accepting every viewpoint is equally true and valid. That's the new definition of tolerance, but that's not tolerance, tolerance in, the, in the Oxford English Dictionary. True tolerance involves treating with integrity and humility someone whose opinions I believe to be untrue and invalid. Tolerance is treating with integrity and humility somebody with whom I actually disagree. We hold entirely opposing views on something. And tolerance says, this isn't going to be a basis for me uh, no longer being able to talk with you or live beside you or travel with you on the train into work. And sometimes it's helpful to think outside the Christian box and to put the argument in this way uh, to our friends and neighbors. For example, a tolerant Buddhist is not one who accepts as true the Hindu belief in an eternal soul. Because that would require a Hindu, that would require a Buddhist, I'm sorry, to deny Buddha's doctrine of no soul. A Buddhist says there's no soul. A Hinduism says there is an eternal soul. Therefore, it's not tolerance that has the Buddhist rolling over and saying, no, I accept that in you. The tolerant Buddhist would be one who, while rejecting the particular Hinduistic beliefs, treats Hindus with kindness and with respect. Therefore, to be a tolerant Christian doesn't mean accepting contrary views as valid, but treating with grace and kindness those with whom you disagree. John Stott, I think, has been as helpful as anyone in this, and if you want to go back and reread Christian Mission in the Modern World, it will repay your endeavors. It's not in there but elsewhere that he distinguishes very helpfully between three areas of tolerance. First of all, he acknowledges that legal tolerance, which ensures every minority's religious and political rights as a democratic privilege, is something that each of us affirms the freedom to profess, to practice, and to pro propagate religion. 
All of us affirm legal tolerance. Social tolerance, which encourages respect for people from different backgrounds, people irrespective of their views, and seeks to understand their positions, which teaches our children that we live in a variegated culture, and people come from different backgrounds, and they dress in different ways, and they think differently from us. We teach our children social tolerance, or we teach them social intolerance. We teach them how to live in that world and engage with that world, or we teach them how to retreat from that world and have nothing to do with it. But social tolerance we affirm, legal tolerance we affirm, but, says Stott, intellectual tolerance, which cultivates a mind so broad that it can tolerate every opinion without ever detecting anything in it to reject, is not a virtue, but the vice of the feeble-minded. I hope you find that as helpful as I do. And then finally, R, the relevance factor. The arrogance factor, the tolerance factor, the relevance factor. The uniqueness of Jesus is inescapable. Christianity is superior, or it is totally irrelevant. Because Christianity makes affirmations that no other religion makes. Not least of all the fact that it begins with God's disclosure or revelation of himself. So, for example, in the Incarnation, the Eternal Son becomes flesh and dwells among us. That is something vastly different from the idea of reincarnation. The Atonement, Christ on the cross, takes the sinner's place, bears our penalty, suffers what we deserve, dies our death. There is nothing like this in Islam or in Hinduism. Nothing like this offered by Ramakrishna. Of course, the argument is that since um, Buddhism defines the problem of humanity in terms of suffering, then for the Christian to define it in terms of sin with the solution being found in Jesus, thereby renders the Christian affirmation irrelevant because the Buddhist has a separate problem with which he is dealing. Well, then if we come back to the doctrine of Scripture that we've just been dealing with earlier on, right? We're going to have to determine what we're going to use as our basis for determining the predicament of humanity. And in the resurrection, there's no comparable claim made or one being made could ever be sustained on behalf of any of the great religious leaders of the world. And there isn't a single page of the New Testament that would have been written apart from the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, we probably would never have heard of him. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, we probably wouldn't even know about him. No, the relevance of our proclamation is found in the fact that although our world says, our culture says, there are just little stories uh, to be enjoyed by little groups of people, everybody's little story for everybody's little group is equally valid, there is no overarching story, no big panoramic perspective that can be thought to explain our existence. The Bible says, hang on a minute. The entire story is the story of our alienation and the wonder of God's reconciliation. 
that the alienations of our world today, which don't have to be argued for, they, tr they, they, they jump out on us, don't they? A man alienated from his wife, parents from their children, employers from their employees, governments from their people. Man alienated from himself, psychologically disengaged, lost. Is it unjust? Is it unfair to say, do you know there is someone who has come to deal with your alienation? Do you know that there is someone who has come and has himself taken all of your alienation in him? Do you know that the story that we have for you is not the story of a God on a deck chair somewhere, but it is the story of a God on a cross? No wonder that this message is of such interest to the Dalits of northern India, to the despised, to those who are left out, to those who are last and least in the caste system of India. They have no interest in the smug Jesus of North America who makes you proud and happy and puts you in places where everything is perfect. What possible relevance does that have for them? But if you go and tell them that this Jesus was despised and rejected of men, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and people hid their faces from him. They're all ears. Who is this person? This is of tremendous relevance. And this, loved ones, is the message we proclaim. Either in Christ, God the Creator and the Redeemer came right into human life, or the Gospels are a record of a lie. As Christians, we're not free to believe what we like. Said Augustine, if you believe what you like in the Gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. And in 1952, addressing Yale Divinity School, James S. Stewart warned the students 58 years ago, warned the students at Yale about a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating Christianity, which said Stewart was less than useless. Theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating Christianity, which begins with us as the center of the universe. And Jesus comes just to add to the sum of our total happiness and to make sure that nothing very much bad will happen to us while we wend our way towards heaven. Well, what a mess we've made of it. It won't do for us to offer our friends and our work associates a God who does everything in general and nothing in particular. It sounds so appealing, but it's irrelevant. And church history proves that whenever the church has lost confidence in the truth and the relevance and the power of the gospel, it has lost its edge in urging men and women on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. We began with an archbishop, and so let me finish up with one. The Archbishop of Canterbury some years ago was in a dialogue with Jane Fonda. The Archbishop of Canterbury said to her, Jesus is the Son of God, you know. To which Fonda replied, Maybe he is for you, but he's not for me. To which the Archbishop replied, Well, he either is or he isn't. Loved ones,
he either is or he isn't. And since there are some children here, I'm going to give a children's conclusion from The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. So you can sit back and uh, you can put your tray tables up and bring, it, bring your seats into a full and upright and locked position. Jill runs into Aslam early in the silver chair. Aslam says to her, if you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she'd heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff for a second. She stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she'd seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she'd been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I didn't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. There is no other stream. Everyone will bow their knee and their tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, everyone. Some with a cry of anguish and others with a shout of joy. And to us is given us this inestimable privilege of going out into an increasingly confused world and frankly an increasingly confused church and holding the line the way Peter did on that memorable day. Oh, that was great. That, that, wow. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. There is no other spring, there is no other Savior. There is no other name by which men must be saved than Jesus Christ. In our pluralistic, emergent, postmodern world, this sounds like arrogance. 
This isn't a matter of arrogance or humility. It's just a statement of fact. They will close their ears, stick their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 we won't want, we don't want to hear you. That's the case. Knock the dust off your feet. Move on to the next town, to the next people. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. On this, the two-year anniversary of Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith, actually it's our three-year for Fighting for the Faith, would you consider supporting us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Uh, When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing mission of Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.